Welcome back to Gal on the Go Unplugged. My guest today is Olivia Noon, CEO of Olivia Noon Communications. Olivia is a change agent leader in the area of diversity, equality, and inclusion. And she's the host of the Never Stop Serving podcast. In addition, Olivia spent 20 years of dedicated service in the U.S. Army, retiring as Lieutenant Colonel. In 2021, she was named USOA's first Ms. Georgetown. In 2022, Olivia was crowned Ms. New York. This gal does it all. Hi, Olivia. Hi, thank you so very much for having me on your show and for allowing me to share my story with your audience. Absolutely. Thank you for coming on Unplugged. You have truly an interesting background and I cannot wait to share about it with our listeners. So let's get right into it. You began your career in the Army. How did that come about? So I am the daughter of an army veteran. My father served in the army for 12 years. He was enlisted as a combat engineer and I am the daughter of three for him. I'm the oldest and he, you know, served in the army and I'm daddy's little girl. And I went everywhere with my dad and I went to his formations and, you know, I I helped shine his boots. You know, he joined in 1976 and, You know, I had no idea what being in the army was. I just knew that that's what my dad did. And I knew since the age of four that I wanted to be in the army. And the one thing that my dad was adamant about was that he did not want me to enlist. I am Korean American, first generation. And for Koreans, it's a big deal to go to college. Like education is so important. And so my parents were very big about okay, you want to join the army? That's fine. But the route that you're going to do is you're going to become an army officer. And to be an officer in the army, you have to have a college degree. So that for me was the route that I was going to go. What I was going to do in the army, how long I was going to be in the army, I had no clue. The only thing I knew since the age of four was I was going to be an army soldier. That I knew. That's pretty amazing to know that since the age of four. That's impressive, (laughs) especially something so like distinct like that. Um, That's just wild. Well, and I love that you were open minded and respectful of your parents are like, okay, that could go down the way that's going to go down. But in this way. Well, you know, Koreans are big on family honor and duty to honor. And I think, you know, if you're not from an Asian heritage, I think the best way to explain, uh, to to encapsulate or to visualize is if you've ever seen the Disney animation Mulan. And at the very end, when the emperor gives Mulan the sword of Shanyu, And she takes that back home to her father and said, the emperor gives this to our family as a symbol of honor for the work that I have done. And that's what it means in the Asian family, right? It's 
we represent everything that is good within the family. So you represent, so all the good that you do, it isn't what you do as an individual. It is that you have done all these works and all these accomplishments because your family has poured into you all the good things. And so it's a representation of your family. And and that is what is taught. It's honor to your family. So I think the military is such an easy fit for the Asian culture. It is duty and honor to your family. And since my dad had served, it just was easy for me to just to see that the military was easy. And my mother is a very strong um, personality. And, you know, and for her, you know, she ran a tight ship for, for the house. And I think, you know, discipline was a big deal. So for me going into the military duty, honor and discipline, I think was just, you know, a natural gravitation towards the military. Well, that's beautiful and cool. I, I love that it aligned with the morals and ethics of your family and you. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I love doing this show, because I get to meet people like you and learn about other cultures. Um, so, okay. You served as a chemical officer and public affairs officer during your army career. In those roles, you were in male-dominated combat arms units. And oftentimes you were the only woman, you know, you you had the strength of your father behind you and your mother. Those are two pretty incredible role models. But what was that experience like for you as an individual? So my first 10 years, I served as a chemical officer. So it's it's kind of a mouthful, right? My actual title was chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear officer. For what it all means is that that particular officer was actually a reactionary staff officer. So if you actually saw the chemical officer doing their job, what they were designed to do, that means one of those types of incidences happen on the battlefield. So that means it's a bad day for any soldier on the battlefield. So, you know, if you think about it, how often is one of those types of events happening? Not often, right? What ends up happening is that that particular staff member is going to be learning how to do a plethora of other things. So the nickname that they give a chemical officer is called the jack of all trades. For me, as a woman... I ended up serving in combat arms unit. What does that mean? That means that the the makeup of those units were dominated by men. So the military as a whole is dominated by men. 80% of the military is men, right? Less than 18% is women. And it wasn't until 2016 that it was federally allowed that Congress said that women could serve in these duty positions or what we would say the front lines, right? Infantry, armor, field artillery, these combat arms positions. But I was in these units where they allowed uh, the women to go into these positions as far forward as possible. So I was allowed to be staff members, but I wasn't allowed to kick down the door, if you will. So if you're getting this visual mental picture from you know Hollywood perspective, I wasn't allowed to be that particular soldier that got to kick down the door. But I, I was allowed to be a staff member that helped plan those missions that kicked down the door. So when you're when you think about the staff members that were helping to plan those missions, oftentimes I was the only woman on that planning staff position that was helping to do those missions. And then the last 10 years of my career, I transitioned to being a public affairs officer. And so I spent a good portion of my career in the military being the only woman. When I looked left and right, it was men. 
And so when you're the only woman surrounded by men, you know, it's a different environment. You you learn to kind of walk differently, your vernacular is different. Um you you get you have a lot of tough skin and you learn to literally and figuratively walk into a room swinging a bat as hard as you can because you have to prove that you have a right to be in that room because you're judged there's a lot of pressure to perform and there's a lot of expectation that you shouldn't be there simply because you're a woman. And and I kind of had a double stack against me there. It was the fact that I was a woman and I was a minority woman on top of that. And, you know, I'm biracial, I'm Korean and English and uh, my physical stature is I'm five foot one on a good day. So here I am as a five foot one Korean American who comes into a room. And, you know, for for me, you know, I barely sometimes come up to, you know, the chest or the, you know, underneath the chin of, of a lot of the guys that I work with. And so there's this, this, this notion that, oh, she's this, this breakable China doll who can't, can't cut it, who who won't be able to withstand the pressure. And I may look like I might be a, a, a breakable doll, you know, but that's not my attitude, right? That's not my attitude. That's not the vernacular that I use. No, you're a badass. I'll just say. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but I had a great time in the military and I won't say that every date was a great day, but I definitely learned so much about myself and I enjoyed the 20 year ride that I had. What did you feel was like your power? Where did you draw your power from? Did you find it was in your voice or your mind in your level of intellect or both? Or what helped you to be able to hold your own in those situations? I think it's more of my attitude. I mean, it's definitely not my voice. Um, You know, this is my voice. It's not, you know, it's not a deep voice. It's not it's not necessarily a high pitched voice either. Um, I I can drop it if I need to when I give commands. Uh, however, it, I think it's more of a mindset. Um, I wouldn't say that I'm the the smartest person in the room. I am definitely smarter than the average person, but I work hard. You know that is the one thing is that I've always worked hard. It was not uncommon that I was the first person in the room and the last person in the room probably one of the best advice that my father gave me, you know, he wasn't, like I said, he was enlisted. And before I commissioned in the army, my dad said, you know, always take care of your soldiers. And if you take care of them and place them first, everything will follow. And I took that to heart. And I figured that if my soldiers really knew that I believed in them and I took care of them, any shortcomings that I would have, they would cover those and that they would take care of me. That's just kind of was my philosophy that if I treated them as a person first and not as a number, then I would be a better leader. The truth was I was never the fastest. You know, I honestly, I stunk at physical fitness, right? I was never the best runner. I hated running. You know, I barely passed any of my physical fitness, you know, tests that we always had to do every six months. Like I was always praying the night before. I'm like, dear God, please let me pass my two mile fitness test. Um, And I would barely come under, you know, the minimum required time because me and running just didn't get along. I was a sprinter. 
And so, so it wasn't like I used my physical fitness ability to be the best leader because that wasn't it. And it wasn't that I was the smartest. I was smart, but I wasn't the smartest. It, I, I, it was truly my attitude. And my attitude was that I'm going to pe- treat people first. And then it was, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to prove to you that I belong here. It was just this no fail attitude of I belong here. I don't want to fail and prove to everybody else that I didn't belong. And I definitely didn't want to feel like a failure or that I was that girl or that girl that failed to open the door for those that were behind me. Because I knew that I was in a place where other women hadn't gone before. And I didn't want to be that girl that failed. Also want to be that girl that proved to the men that like, see, this is why women can't be here. She can't hack it. She don't give them excuses type of thing. Yeah, That's just so admirable. And the depth of what you thought of things and, you know, setting up for future females to come in the, in, in those roles, it's just so powerful and thoughtful. You were meant to be in the role you were in. You know, I I think, you know, when you first start out, I don't think you, you know, I definitely didn't think of it that way. It was definitely something you, as you're going along, you realize that's what you're doing. It was more of a selfish reason of you just didn't want to make a fool of yourself. And as you're moving along in that, you realize it's not only making a fool of yourself, you just don't want to screw it up for everybody else that's to come behind you. And then I think the other part is you want to leave a legacy of that you want to be a leader that was not just somebody that was that just clocked in and did their job and left, but that a leader that that was different from the others. And when the soldiers remembered you, it was something that was meaningful. And it wasn't just, oh yeah, it was Captain Nunn, you know, that was here for X, Y, and Z. But I remember Captain Nunn for these reasons, and those reasons were heartfelt. To your point, it wasn't just like the role or the job to you and the fact that you learned things along the way about yourself and about your respect for the position and how you wanted it to be perceived. You know, I made a lot of mistakes too along the way, right? But I think, but that's part of life, right? It's about, you know, making mistakes along the way, but then being able to reflect back and go, well, don't do that again. Or, you know, I made this mistake and but I've learned from it. I'm going to grow from this. But I definitely lucked out. I had some incredible soldiers in my formation that allowed me the grace to grow from those mistakes. And and I definitely had a unique leadership experience where I had such senior soldiers in my formation that allowed me to not only make mistakes and grow from them, but also gave me the opportunity to um, learn from them because they weren't junior soldiers. They were older and they had seen so much. And so they were able to give me counsel. Um, and, and so I lucked out in that aspect. I ended up commanding, I was a company commander, which is a, a captain in the army, which is um, the rank of 03. And definitely, you know, what I was able to see in the army is later on, you know, 10 years later, when I went to the strategic levels of the army, now I'm a public affairs officer and I'm helping to write messaging for the army. 
And I got to write part of the messaging for the army about women in combat roles that impacted the army across the board. And so now it's women being allowed into positions that I wasn't allowed when I first came in in 2001. And now they get to be there. Now women can join in the army at those positions when they first raise their right hand. And so now they get to lead those formations, whereas that wasn't afforded to me. And so while I didn't get to see that firsthand when I was at that level, at what we call the tactical level when I was a captain, but as a major and lieutenant colonel, I get to see the policy now put into play. And now that I'm retired, those policies are in play. You know, 10, 15 years later, those young soldiers that joined as they're growing through the ranks will now be leading formations that I was dreaming of. I think that's really cool. It's so wild to be referencing the 2000s and you talking about this having taken place in the 2000s is just like, really? Seriously? Like, it's just so hard to grasp sometimes that it's not like referencing, you know, years ago. And I think we forget that sometimes even in today's standard, right? Because I think so much so that our culture and our society has transformed and changed because of technology. But when we take a step back and you think about some of the rights given to certain populations, it hasn't been that long. You know, sometimes when we think about it, we think, oh, that was so long ago, but it wasn't. And then when you think about when did women have the right to vote? When did women have the right to their own choices in their body? Hi, we just had this huge conversation in 2022, right? Absolutely ridiculous. About abortion rights. And so when you start talking about, about that from that perspective, it isn't that long ago. And I think, you know, we forget that because we're so used to technology being part of our lives that we don't take a moment to step back and say, it isn't normal for so many of us. You know, uh, you just gave me like an aha moment because you're right. Technology makes you have this mindset where you think almost in a cocky way, like in general of society, like we're so advanced. Look at this technology we have that we're able to do this, this, especially with like AI. But then when you think of things as simple as like humanistic, basic, like, you know, treatment and rights of people, it's like we're not so advanced at all. And, you know, the timing of these things, exactly to your point, are not as like far ago as you would, you know, think they are. Having to, you know, uh, go with your little girl in in your path, um, do you think that she has an interest now? She's little, but and so she doesn't really know what soldiering is like other than, you know, what TV and Hollywood. And I think the the glamour of it is what she's excited by. And we just had a conversation 
right around Veterans Day because her school had asked me, can you come in and give a Veterans Day presentation? And so I did. And after Veterans Day, you know, she said, you know, mom, I really want to go in the military because her father, um, we're separated now, we're divorced, but her father had went to West Point. And she's like, you know, I think I really want to, you know, do what you guys did go in the military and maybe go to West Point. And I'm like, you know, that's great, honey. If that's what you really want to do, you know, I will never stop you. But I don't know if, you know, based on your current personality trend, if the military is necessarily what you would want to do, you know, like she, she's just, she wears her heart on her sleeve and she's just very loving. And, and I, I kind of had to break it down for her. And she was just like, you mean you don't tell everybody what to do all the time? And I'm like, no, you know, your mom had bosses all along the way to include all the way up to the very end. So, so we'll see, right? All that to say is we'll see, uh, you know, there's, there's a part of me that, you know, I'm second generation to serve. And so there's half of me that wants my kid to serve because there is honor in serving our country. But at the same time, you know, when you take that part away and it's just mom talking, right? The mom and me's like, nah. Forge your own path the way you want. Yeah. But but here's the truth, right? And for somebody who served in the army and somebody for the last three years in the army, my job was U.S. Army soldier for life. We were in the business about transition and talking about recruitment for the army. And here's the actual truth and statistics about the army. 0.45%, so not even 1% serve in any given part of the military. So army, navy, marine corps, space force, whatever, right? Less than 50% of America knows about the military in any one of the branches of service, understands the military. And what they understand about the military has to do with what Hollywood says or what the news says about us, which is never positive. And majority of our installations are on the, are down in the South in rural America. And that has to do with we need land mass size in order to do what we do to practice and to get out there and to train. Because who wants a tank running through their background? And, you know, like in New York City or in <laughs> like Egypt, that just doesn't happen, right? And at the same time, the last 20 years has seen us at war. We're the longest serving generation at war between Iraq and Afghanistan. With technology, we've also been able to bring numerous members of us home, been able to save our lives on the battlefield, which has been amazing. But at the same token, that same story where we've been able to save our, our fellow soldiers on the battlefield, that same story is some of those injuries are very horrific. And we have some great organizations that have done so much for our wounded service members, right? They've, you know, they've done a lot in prosthetics and limbs and treatment and all those things and built homes. But in that same story, like Wounded Warrior and all those other things, they've done so much for us. But that same flip side of that story is it is told our parents, particularly mothers, if you join the military, you come back broken, that we're damaged goods. That's the bad side of that story. While we're heroes on one aspect, we're damaged goods on the other. The military is a representation of every zip code across America. And what I want America to understand is that the military is, is really a doorway of opportunity. Here's the thing. The United States Army is the, hands down, the largest producer and giver of scholarship for college. The largest. 
largest. Can you cannot touch it? You need money for college? Join the army. And here's the thing: you don't need to do 20 years like me. You need to upskill. You want to learn how to do carpentry, masonry, all of that. Join the military. Because when you come out on the backside, they will teach you how to get these skills. Every fiscal year, there's free money for soldiers to go to school for you to put education dollars towards college education or for trade school. And when you come out, you have 9-11 money, $9-11 dollars to go to school or for towards trade school. That's what I want people to understand is that it is a stepping stone to the next chapter of your life. And here's the thing, the title veteran is never given, it's earned. And it's another tribe that once you're a part of will never be taken away. And it is the best tribe that you can ever be a part of because they will always be there for you because it doesn't matter where you go, doesn't matter what branch of service you served in. When you connect with another fellow veteran and you share a story and you say you need help, they're gonna be there for you because they get you. They understand the lifestyle that you went through. It's not for everybody. But for those that are willing to go through it, through the crucible of the military, it's worth it. Well, that is incredibly powerful. And you educated me with so many things just now. I mean, I had no idea that the Army was one of the, you know, top suppliers of scholarship money. There's so much more good about the military than there are the negatives. Is it perfect? No. No institution, no job is perfect. Like everyone, Everything has its problems. I would be lying to say that it doesn't have its problems, right? But again, this is what I'm going to say. We are a portion of the society in which we represent. You know, I, I appreciate that it is a generation that is different from Vietnam where, you know, we do get thank yous and people do appreciate us. All that to say is do more than say thank you for your service you know, take a step further, give back, give back in your time, give back in your, in your dollars, find an organization, a nonprofit that you can give five bucks to, right? Instead of your next latte or your next beer, give $5. Here's something that I'm very big on is mental health. There's not enough mental health resources in the military community. I know this firsthand when I went through my own transition as I was retiring. I stepped back from suicide. I was a lucky one. And when I was going through my own, I found out that there was not enough resources. I was crying out for help and I couldn't find somebody to help me. My story is unique because I knew all the players. I knew all the organizations and I couldn't get help. And that's that's what I'm getting, driving at is that there's not enough. We are, there's not enough resources. Find a nonprofit that you can give help to. Headstrong Foundation is a nonprofit that assists with uh, mental health support, right? So if a veteran or a service member or their family needs help, they can simply do an intake, go online, do their intake. It's simple, three questions, and they're going to get support right away. And it costs them nothing. I can't speak enough about, about organizations like that. Um, Workplay Obsession is a nonprofit that my partner founded a couple of years ago. And, you know, it's about going out, helping through the invisible wounds of trauma. You know, I think so many people think that all wounds that deal with trauma or the, or the military or the, or war are visible, right? Are the ones that are missing limbs or eyes or things like that. But the truth is majority of our military veterans and our service members have trauma 
but it's invisible, right? A lot of it has to do with TBI or PTSD or or behavioral, and you don't see that. And so when you look at us, you think, well, she or he is normal. There's nothing wrong with that person. And not understanding that so much of their wound and so much of their trauma is invisible to the naked eye. You just don't know, right? We, We hear this so much about be kind, right? And I can't stress that enough. There's, it's understanding that there's so much when it comes to the military community, and it's not just the military member, right? You've got spouses that are in this fight too, you know, day in and day out, they've been the backbone of the service member while the service member has been off to wars or to the field and training and they're, they're home, right? They're the ones taking care of the kids, taking care of the family, holding it all down. They need that support too. They need the counseling or the trauma support. And then our kid, the military kids too, they're the ones seeing their parents having to deal with all this and the parents gone and coming home and stitching that family back together. And then the caregivers of all of this. At the end of the day, there's just not enough. And then again, you know, I mentioned earlier, a lot of our military organizations and installations are in rural America. They're not like DC, right? Where it's this metropolitan area and where you can resources are galore. When you're like, you know, Fort Drum, New York, right? That is, you know, upstate New York in the middle of nowhere where there's hardly any resources. So what happens if a family member is up there and they they need help? They're not going to find it. And and that's what I'm driving at is we just don't have enough resources and Mental health is a huge conversation. It's a huge conversation in total. And now when you bring it under the microscope and you're talking about inside the military community and you're talking about a community that isn't understood widely by everybody and we have our own unique challenges based on what we do for a living, the trauma that we've seen, the type of lifestyle that we have, you know, it's it's unique to us. And here's the second part. If you, if you can't give your time and effort then help with legislation, help change some of the local policies and laws, right? Um, You know, how do you get involved in the community? So there's a lot of ways that you can get involved in the local area with your military community. And so that's what I say. Thank you for saying thank you. Take it a step further. So I see you is appreciated, but it goes beyond that. Going a little back to what you mentioned and how it was such a struggle for you when you retired. You retired, you think, right? Like you'd be so excited, like, oh, yay, I'm retiring from the military, going into the public sector. But that was not the case for you, as you mentioned. Um, Did you foresee that coming? Did you not expect your feelings to be what they were when that time came? So it was a definite high and low. I was prepping for my retirement. So U.S. Army Soldier for Life is a, like I said, a strategic organization that's in the business of helping service members, you know, transition out of the military, whether it's, you know, ETSing, which is getting out um, and then or retiring. For me, I was on the retirement boat because I did my 20 years. Regardless of how you choose to get out of the military, whether you're ETSing or retiring, we always say you start 24 months out. You start that preparatory work two years before you actually do. So I knew when my date was. I knew I was going to get out at the 20-year mark. So I I did what we preached. 
And as my time was coming to a close, you know, I'm, you know, getting excited. I knew what I was doing. I had planned it all out. So there was definitely that joy in that, yes, it's finally coming here. I'm at that, you know, I'm I'm coming closer and closer. Here's that finish line. You know, you get that senioritis, but it all came crashing down. I had been married and with my husband at that point, my whole entire career. I met him when I first joined the military. I met him at my first duty assignment, Fort Hood, Texas. It was unexpected for both of us, but basically my marriage had come to a screeching halt and I, and it came out from left field that, um, that my marriage had come to an end and he, you know, was basically like our marriage is done. And, and because I wasn't prepared for that and I didn't know that that was coming, that I was crushed and that left me broken. And because that's not what we had planned, right? I had these plans of I was going to get this kind of job and he was building our this company and we we're going to live this kind of life. And so because that wasn't what we planned and that wasn't the vision that I had. And this was the man that I'd been with for 20 years and we had two children. At the same time, everything that I had shoved away into little boxes in my 20-year career had come undone. I had to deal with all the trauma of my 20 years. I had to deal with the assault. I had been assaulted as a lieutenant. I was physically assaulted by, by my teammate. I had to deal with all the trauma for my three deployments. I had to deal with just all the bureaucracy and the BS and just everything, right? All at once. On top of transitioning out of the military is a traumatic event in itself. It's it's a divorce, if you will. So I'm divorcing the army. I'm going through an actual divorce in my marriage. And now all of the trauma of my 20-year career is all colliding. So all of these life-altering things in my life are all colliding at the same time. And I just couldn't take it. And I didn't handle it very well. And it, and it goes back to, you know, I think part of the military culture and the military mindset and the expectation of, of what I thought. And for me, it was, I needed to be perfect. I mean, I needed to be perfect. I needed to, I needed to be here. I needed to be this. I need to be that. And I, I saw everything as a failure. And because of all of that, I didn't know what else to do. And I felt so lost. And because I was losing my marriage and my husband and my identity of being a wife, an officer, that I just didn't know what else to do. And I was so broken. The army taught me how to be an effective planner. And here's the thing about planners, right? And this is the thing about the military. Find the problem, fix the problem, remove the problem. And in my pain and in my sorrow and in and in that darkness, I correlated that I was the problem. Yeah, you were not the problem. My only rational was I had to remove myself. I so I planned it all, right? Because I was an effective planner. That's what that's what the army had taught me. And so I I I had planned three effective different ways on how to remove myself. And and I knew exactly how I was gonna do it. And I, and I almost did. And it just, it just so happened that, you know, something just triggered that I need to not do it. So what you were taught 
was almost used against you at not your own will, basically, even. And I am so glad you didn't do anything because you're an incredible woman. And I'm so glad you had like the strength and the just, I, I don't think there's a better word actually than strength to know that those three options were not the right options. You know, when you go through it, you just, you know, you just think that you are, right? You just think when you're so broken, you know, you just like, no one loves you. You think that you're so, that you're so problematic. And and the other part is that you don't want to be a burden, right? And you think that if you remove yourself, then it makes it easier for everybody else, right? You don't, you don't see it as a selfishness. You think that you're making it easier. Like it's selflessness. You think you're doing a favor. Yes. Um, and that's something that I didn't think I would ever understand, right? Up until that point, I always never understood that, right? I, like I could never understand like, why, why would anybody be in that position or why would they think like that? And it's not until you go through that yourself that you're like, uh, oh, I can, I can understand that. For me, it it wasn't an easy place to be. Well, what, any three of those things, the retirement, the transition, the end of the marriage would have been, you know, a lot for a person to handle. So the fact that you came through all three of those, which collide at the same time with grace on the other side, it's just incredible. Again, I'm just really happy that you, and especially since you said, which really makes me sad that you knew about the help that existed, but yet didn't have, you know, access to it. And, and here's the thing. It's not that like none of the organizations didn't want to help me. They did, right? It's when I called them or contacted them, they knew exactly who I was. It wasn't that they didn't know me or didn't want to help me. It was just that they were tapped out. And that, and that's what I'm driving at is that, they, the, the organizations, there's one, there's not enough organizations, number one. And number two is they're tapped out. There's not enough organizations and resources out there to effectively help. But that's not acceptable because, you know, to, to your point, because you know what, if I had like a broken leg, right. And I couldn't get the mental medical attention I needed. I have a broken leg. I have to deal with it. It, it might not heal right. Whatever. We're, you know, a brain is so different. So, so different. I mean, once you, once someone would take a life, there's no one doing that. Like there's no room for it to not have attention or resources provided. And that I think is where, you know, I want the American people to understand, we say 22 a day. And I think there was actually a, a study that was just recently published. It's actually now higher, right? That number has been so, and we, we've always known that that number was drastically low because that's just number, that number's based on what's reported. And we know that those numbers have always been low because people don't report. We don't, in the military community, it's not reported because of the stigma, right? And, and, you know, one, the part of the conversation we, we haven't talked about, you know, you did bring it up in my, my bio and in my intro was that, you know, I got into pageantry and after my retirement and, 
in pageantry, one of the things that you do is that you have a platform and the platform is about a topic that you want to advocate on, that you want to talk about, that you want to be known for. And for me, it's, you know, what we've been talking about, which is mental health. And that for me is why I got into pageantry is that it's not about winning for me. I want to use the crown to have a conversation. It's such a juxtaposition when you see this crown on me, right? I spent 20 years, you know, being rough and tough, you know, walking around in combat boots and having this very, you know, very jagged type of personality and very rough, you know, hard, hard personality, right? And that hard personality translated in my body language and in my face too. You know, I, my middle sister, she lived with me up until earlier this year. And if you ask any of her friends, and we always joke about this, right? All her friends say when they meet me, they're like, your sister like looks really mean. Like she scares me. And I, and I'll laugh at that. I'm like me. Cause I'm shorter than her too. Like I, I'm like the shortest sister. And I'm like, what do you mean? I'm like me. I'm like, I'm super nice. But even all her friends are like, I would never want to mess with your sister. And it's because it's spent so long, you know, spending time in a career and a craft where I've had to be tough, right? Mentally, emotionally, physically, where I come into a room and it's just like, don't mess with me, right? It's that attitude, that physical aggression of, I'm not going to take your crap. And, and, And that, you know, is portrayed in my actions and body language. Without you even realizing it. Without me realizing it. And I've learned to try to, you know, kind of take some of that off because I don't really need that anymore now in my civilian life. And now that I've swung into pageantry, it's like learning to, you know, not need that and be very, you know, be more feminine and walk in six inch heels and in gowns. Not that I was never into that. I did like heels and dresses and stuff like that, but be more feminine, be more in touch with my feminine side. For me, it's, when I do wear those gowns at other events and wear this crown, it's having a conversation of like, what is that crown? Why are you wearing that crown? Especially those that know me and say like, you're in the army, you're a lieutenant colonel. Like, why do you have a crown? And it's, and it's that conversation. And then if I'm in a, then if I'm in an area where it's predominantly civilian and they see this crown, and then I talk about, about mental health, and it's about mental health in the military community. Like, well, why specifically about the military community? It's like, well, I'm a retired lieutenant colonel. And they're like, well, you're too pretty to be in the military. It's like, well, I'm not, but let me tell you about the military, right? Let's have this conversation about the military. Let me tell you about why it's so important. Why, why you need to know about the lack of resourcing in the military community. That is why this conversation is so important to me because there's just not enough, right? Like people are, they just don't understand at the end of the day that there's not enough resources. To be able to have that conversation about why there's not enough, what can we do about it? And the fact that in the military community, it's about breaking the silence about it it's ending the stigma around mental health and then driving real change because 22 a day that number is very low and the reason why it's low because we don't actually report the true numbers because it it's about that community it's about how we have to present this facade of we're tough 
or that if we really talk about it, we might lose our clearance or that if I do this, we're going to get pulled off mission and I'm not part of the team. Those are the things that I talk about, about ending the stigma and and breaking the silence. Well, anything one or more is not acceptable at all. The fact that you could have just said to people you come across, you know, you share your story. I I think it it was so meant for you to be involved um, in the pageantry and the titles that you earned, you know, of Miss Georgetown and Miss New York, because you have this like um, just gift of, you know, being able to bring it to people's attention in the masses and to personalize it. You lived it. For me, it's topic near and dear to my heart and I could go on for hours, right? Just because, it, you know, it, you're right. Because I've lived it. I've been there. I've lost friends. You apply for the pageantry and you become Ms. Georgetown. You're the first Ms. Georgetown. That's pretty amazing. Also, what did that mean to you? Like, why did you pursue that? Did you know that you were going to use it for the platform of mental health or that just organically came about? It kind of came about organically. Uh, So how I got into it was my girlfriend uh, was the pageant director of this area. And she called me up and she said, hey, Olivia, I think you should do this pageant. And I was like, no. She's like, you really should. I said, no. She's like, you really should. I said, okay, (laughs) fine. And that's how the conversation went. And what I was doing while we're having this quick conversations dialogue in my head, the analysis that I quickly came up with was, why not? I've had two kids. I've already deployed three times to combat. I've done 20 years in the army. I've already done the hard stuff. I've already gone through a divorce. I've stepped back from suicide. This pageantry thing kind of scares me, but it can't be any scarier than the things I've already named off. So why not? Why not give it it a try? So I said, okay. Um, I said, what do I got to do? Hopefully no talent because I really don't have talent because I'm not going to sing. I can't really dance. So, okay. (laughs) And she's like, no, you don't got to do that. You just got to do a costume. You got to do an interview and you have a swimsuit and gown. And I was like, cool, I can talk. I'm a great interview. I do that all day long for my job. And swimsuit, I'm like, ooh, well, I guess I can start working out. Um, I love evening gowns. So yeah, I think I, I, what do I've got to lose? So I said, sure. And when we're looking at the different districts and different areas that I can compete in, you know, Georgetown kind of just seemed the natural fit because uh, I had gone to Georgetown University. Uh, I had gotten my second master's there uh, thanks to the Army. And it just it was just such an incredible time for me when I'd gone to school there. And so it just was a natural fit for me to to compete as Miss Georgetown to the title of uh, District of Columbia. So that was the actual main title that I was running for. I was Miss Georgetown competing into uh, District of Columbia. And really it was about what do I've got to lose? And as I was working towards that, it was what is going to be my platform? And, you know, there's a lot of things that I, I, I'm a, I'm a speaker and, uh, and there's a lot of topics that I get, I get brought on to to talk about everything from transitioning out of the military, uh, social media, podcasting, women empowerment, diversity. And so I could have talked about all of those things. You know, I, I get brought on for a lot of those topics. And then and when we got into the subject of mental health, it just kind of made sense. 
of all of those topics that I talk about, mental health just kind of seemed the most powerful punch of it all for me at that moment, because it was the story for me that I had, that I just kind of went through. And I think it just made the most sense for me. And that's just been really my platform. And I think it, it resonates, I think the most with, with, not only just the military community, but I think with the civilian community, I think we all can understand how mental health impacts all of us. Have had an interesting ride since, you know, pageantry is is a whole new world. You know, learning to walk on six inch heels is is um, it's been a challenge. Definitely different from combat boots, but I think of of all the things I have that I've learned so far in pageantry is that. You know, you think you you feel pretty confident about yourself in a swimsuit or two because I I wore a two piece on stage. Is that you know I've, I've gone to the beach and I'm like oh, I feel pretty good. I've lost some weight, you know, and I'm I'm in a two piece and I've gone to the beach and I'm like oh I got this. But there's something to be said about wearing a two piece on stage when you are standing backstage and you realize that they're about to call your name and you realize that it's you and it's only you and everybody is looking at you and that spotlight. Yes. And the spotlight is on you and everyone's looking at you and you're strutting across the stage in these six inch stilettos. You're just, and the only thing you could think of is you're like, wow, I'm in this bikini and everyone's looking at me and they can see every part of me. And you're like, please don't fall. 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 So yeah. Um, I think for me, that was probably the scariest, um, uh, That's wild given your background. So in 2021, you crush it. I'm going to say you crush it as Miss Georgetown uh, in the District of Columbia. And then what makes you then go on to go for Miss New York? Was it being able to continue sharing your platform or something totally different? Um, so I, I didn't win District of Columbia. Um, I, you know, uh, my friend Amber won. And, um, but the pageant director, my friend said, you know, told the national director, like, hey, Olivia did really well. And I think it'd be worth talking to her and interviewing her for the open positions that are open in the nation and interviewing her and placing her into the interview competition pool. And so that's what I did. And she interviewed me for the positions that were open and New York was one of them. And so I I won New York through that way. And New York was interesting to me because I had been stationed at New York. I've always had a love for New York, you know, ever since I was a kid. And I think it's, you know, the big city lights and, you know, Broadway and, and all of that. And also, I think it was strategically placed for me in terms of, you know, living here in D.C. It's if I need to do appearances, I can quickly get on a train and, you know, ride the train up and and catch something in three hours, which is, you know, hi, you know, I met you, you know, coming back on a train ride from, from New York. For me, it wasn't so much about the winning aspect. It was about the conversation of the crown. It was, I, I, I'm so involved in the, in the veteran community space here in the DC area that I, I go to a lot of events because I'm an ambassador to another nonprofit. I'm a vice president to another nonprofit. I'm an executive director to another nonprofit. 
whenever I go to events, it's not uncommon that I would wear a sash and a crown to these events. And I do a lot of photo op- opportunities. And it's not uncommon that a lot of people will ask to take photos with me. People know me as Lieutenant Colonel Nunn because I've been a podcast host for the U.S. Army. And I'm also a podcast host for Military Officers Association of America. We're in season three, which is the never ending, uh, never, never stop serving podcast series. Sorry. I almost made a reference to one of my favorite <laughs> movies as a kid. The Never Stop Serving podcast series. And so, you know, so so whenever I go places, you know, people are like, can I get a photo with you? And so, and for me, it's when I'm in my sash and crown, it's, hey, Libby, why, why are you wearing that, that crown? Let me tell you why I'm wearing this crown. This crown is about mental health. And they're like, oh, okay, well, well, what do you want me to know about it? I'm like, okay, well, then it's it's just like this conversation we've had on your podcast. It's about, it's more than saying thank you go a step further and and do something with it. He, you know, the takeaway is give five bucks, give five minutes, you know, follow up and chase it with a policy, make a change in policy. That is what that crown is for me, right? It is the conversation of the crown and making a change because that crown sparked a conversation. And that's why I decided to go with, uh, with being... United States of America's Miss New York. And my reign is about to end. You know, it ends at the end of this year. So I've got, you know, uh, a little bit of time left. And, but I've had such a fantastic ride with it. Um, and again, it was never about winning. It was always about the conversation. And, you know, I look forward to next year when, you know, I go onto a different part of pageantry and and have a conversation again with it with a different crowd. Okay, so... Talking about your pageantry coming up, what do you have, you know, as this chapter closes with this current rain, what's coming up for you in 2023? So 2023 is going to be a pretty big year for me. I am striking out on my own. Um, So I started my own LLC last year and I just kind of like was dormant with it. It was just kind of just doing these little things on the side, but 23 is like, it's me, right? It's I am going to work for myself. And when, and it's, it's, it's scary to say that when you're like, I'm working for myself when you don't have a constant, you know, every two weeks, a paycheck's coming in for yourself. And when you've lived like that for 21 years, when, you know, Uncle Sam or a contracting gig has been paying, it's, it's scary. You're like, oh my God, I'm working for myself. Um, But, you know, from a mental health perspective, it's what I needed to do because I wasn't happy. And, you know, I was started to go back down that dark road and I was questioning what I was doing and I wanted to, you know, I started to, to question why I was here and that I needed to remove myself. And I knew that that's not where I needed to be. And I realized when I was doing that, that there was no reason why I needed to do that. I had to change that, that, that scenario. I needed to figure it out. And for me, it's my passion is I love being a communicator. I love being a storyteller. And for me, that's being a paid speaker, being a podcaster and doing communications. And so why not? You know, why not get paid to do that and working with clients that want to hire me to do that? You so. know, why not take a chance on yourself? You, you've you given years and years to everyone else. You know, now's the time to invest in yourself. And you know what? You know, the saying of no, you know, without risk, there's no reward. So I hope that you find great success in this risk that you're taking. And 
Thank you. You have mentioned the organizations and I want people to, um, you know, learn more about you. So to learn more about Olivia, please check out her IG page at the underscore Olivia Nunn. There you'll find her incredible posts of information about the nonprofit organizations, her speaking engagements, all the cool things that she's up to. So make sure to connect with Olivia and IG. Thank you for taking the time to unplug with me today, Olivia. Thank you. Appreciate it. Rock on. 